In Exodus chapters 24 through 31 and 35 through 40, we get a description of God's tent. After receiving the family rules, Moses builds an altar to God. He then reads the family rules back to the children of Israel, the Big Ten and all those little practical daily ones. The people, after hearing this, commit themselves. We'll follow all these rules God has laid down. Right. Moses takes blood drained from bulls that were offered to God as a burnt offering, puts half of that blood on the altar, and throws, yes, throws, the other half of the blood out onto the people. It's a blood covenant. God summons Moses up Mount Sinai for something else. He wants to give Moses the design for his tent. God will dwell with his people in the wilderness and when they arrive in the promised land in a special God tent. Most of the last half of the book of Exodus describe God explaining the design of this tent. Here's what God's tent was to look like. First, it was to be surrounded by a courtyard. That courtyard would not be large. In fact, one quarter of a football field. Within that courtyard would be God's tent. And that wouldn't be big either, 15 by 45 feet. That's essentially the dimensions of a small trailer house. In my high school years, I lived in a trailer house or mobile home. It was three bedrooms, 14 by 70. God's tent within the courtyard would be the size of a small mobile home. Exodus tells us while God's courtyard and tent would not be ornate, they would be made of exquisite materials. Gold, silver, bronze, gemstone, beautiful fabric, and lovely wood. Those materials would be donated by the people or purchased from the people through a tax on all fighting men, an atonement tax. By the way, Exodus then numbers those men who've come out of Egypt. I rounded it off to 600,000. The exact number is 603,550, each paying one half a shekel. God specs the following furniture for his tent. First, and most importantly, the covenant chest, or you may know it as the Ark of the Covenant. It was the size of Grandma's cedar trunk, overlaid with gold. There was a table of presents with fresh bread always on it, a lampstand with lamps always lit, an altar where blood was to be poured, another altar where incense would go up before God, and wash basins for the priests who would serve. God tells Moses about the priests, who would serve him, how they should be dressed, consecrated, and what they should do before him each day. Aaron and his sons were selected to be God's first priests, serving in God's tent. God specifically describes the garments they were to prepare and wear. He creates the exact ceremony for how they would be ordained. And he gave to them the duties that they would do every day. God continues giving Moses the recipes for both the incense and the anointing oil, recipes that were never to be duplicated for common use. God names craftsmen within the children of Israel who were to carry out the construction of his tent, the furnishings, and the clothing the priests would wear. As you read about God's tent in Exodus 24-40, through 40, you'll see that it was modest but precious, and it was very mobile. Certain furnishings maintained poles through gold rings, ready to be picked up at any time and carried off. 
The courtyard wrapped in fabric could be folded up and carted off. Like a NASCAR pit crew, God's tent in its surrounding courtyard could be folded up, packed away, and carted off within two hours. We also know it was highly symbolic, symbolic of God and his relationship with his children, Israel. Moses could not have understood all that symbolism as he wrote down God's plan, his blueprint for his tent. But as you read it, and as we read through the rest of the Old Testament and the New, we'll discover God's amazing strategic imagery in the symbolism of God's tent. The blueprint complete, Moses begins to assemble the materials. We're told the people were so generous, Moses had to stop the donations. The craftsman, Bezalel, identified by God to lead the project, begins his work. Exodus tells us that construction was finished on God's tent on the first day of the first month of the second year, just ten and a half months after leaving Egypt and seven and a half months after arriving at Mount Sinai. Chapter 40 tells us what happened. The presence of God descended on God's tent like a cloud, and there it stayed, by day the cloud, by night like a glowing fire. The children of Israel will discover when that cloud by day or fire by night lifts from God's tent and begins to move, it's time for them as a people to roll with him. And so we learn of God's tent in Exodus 24 through 31 and 35 through 40. In Exodus 24 through 31, God gives Moses the plan for his tent. In Exodus 35 through 40, Moses reports how God's tent was built according to plan. But we've missed three chapters, Exodus 32 through 34. There on the mountain, with the plans for constructing God's tent fully given to Moses, God does something else. On stone tablets, he lasers into the stone his ten family rules. Moses heads down the mountain with these stone tablets and his construction plan in mind. What he discovers when he gets down the mountain to the children of Israel is described for us in Exodus 32 through 34. It is arguably the lowest point in the history of the children of Israel. For while God is on the mountain lasering his laws into stone tablets, his children are down at the foot of the mountain, shattering many of them. We'll look at what happened at the base of Mount Sinai and the heartbreak it brought to God and Moses in our next word picture.